Discovery requires serendipity, but serendipity is not a chance event alone. It is a process in which a chance event is seized upon by a creative person who chooses to pay attention to the event, unravel its mystery, and find a proper application for it. Neil, how are you doing this fine Friday afternoon? Pretty good. I'm uh, excited for this serendipitous episode. I am. This is a fun book to read. It's light. It's enjoyable. It's kind of funny at times. It's a little bit more uh, easygoing than the uh the, the somewhat depressing i guess in comparison yeah. <laughs> that's what i was just gonna say in, in comparison <laughs> to i was gonna say like beginning of infinity which was you know 800 pages of mind bending like physics and you know pan disciplinary thinking and then the war on normal people which was like wow we're all very fucked um this was fun this is a nice uh nice way to mix it up yeah exactly and i mean it, like yeah it's lighter but then on the other hand it's also uh, somewhat critical, not even somewhat, very critical of like how uh, like the medical community and I would say the research community kind of operates on a day-to-day basis. So basically anti-dogma and this author was really pushing for, in my opinion, what's kind of similar to a lot of the themes that we've talked about on this book, uh, in this book, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, a lot of the themes in this book are very similar to themes we've talked about in this podcast. You know, for example, like bottom up as opposed to kind of like a top down methodology. So I thought there were definitely some parallels. But yeah, you're right. It was definitely more optimistic, I would say, than more on normal people. That's for sure. Although I guess the on the flip side of that, if you went into the book thinking that, you know, the scientific method was a reliable way to discover new things and that we are making, you know, steady, meaningful progress towards solving the world's problems. I think this book would change your perspective away from away from that belief. Yeah. So in that sense, it could be a little uh, bit of a downer, I suppose. A downer, but it's also like um, it's mind bending in that way, too, because I think the way science is probably portrayed to, well, definitely when you're in school, but also in kind of like in pop culture and you know, kind of like movies and things like that, right? It just is like mm-hmm. the scientists are just out there plugging away, you know, spending the hours in the lab and making, as you said, steady progress towards solving all the world's problems. And I think in that way, this book is very, very similar to Beginning of Infinity in the central message, which is kind of like, I remember in Beginning of Infinity, like one of his key points was you kind of need to conjecture to then use the scientific method with like those two things are kind of they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really like use the scientific method without first having a hypothesis or or without. I mean, it's kind of there are differences, too, because in, in this book, a lot of the things they talked about were actually, you know, both the accidents and sort of the serendipitous things that led to a lot of these discoveries. But I think both authors would agree that like progress in any field, definitely in medicine, but in probably physics as well requires um or it doesn't move in a straight line i think that's probably it's not a linear thing yeah and to be clear the book we're talking about if you missed it on the title is happy accidents by morton myers which as you've probably guessed by now is sort of an exploration of scientific discovery and progress and how consistently it is influenced and driven by the role of serendipity so we should probably define serendipity for everyone because the the common usage isn't entirely faithful to i think what 
uh, the author is getting at in the book and what the word actually means. Because I think in sort of modern vernacular, serendipity is kind of just like stumbling over something or being surprised or getting lucky. But what uh, Myers clarifies in the book is that serendipity as he's using it is really a combination of accidents and is it sagacity? Sagacity? Yeah, I was going to ask you how to pronounce that. <laughs> I haven't I haven't actually said that word out loud before. So we should look that up quickly. Sagacity. All right. Solve that mystery. Anyway, uh, it's a combination of accidents and sagacity, right? So it's not just enough to get lucky or have something random happen. You also have to have the sagacity to know what to do with it, which is uh, as, as he defines it, like penetrating intelligence, keen perception, and sound judgment, right? You need to not just have these random good things happen. You need to also know how to recognize when they are happening and take advantage of them. Because there's like that great, what, Churchill quote that men occasionally stumble over the truth, but they quickly like brush themselves off and run off as if, you know, They'd never run into it. It's it's easy to like discover some of this stuff, but you could completely miss that you have discovered it if you aren't paying attention. Well, there were so many instances of that. Yeah. Which we'll definitely get into. But like the first one that comes to mind for me was like penicillin, where um, I think Fleming even said that, you know, he he was about to throw away a Petri dish that he noticed, you know, something strange happening. But then even later on, he mentioned how there probably were thousands of petri dishes thrown away that actually showed the exact same thing right as the one where which led to the discovery of penicillin <laughs> or the lsd discovery where he like yeah. formulated it and then just it sat on a shelf for seven years and then what he had a dream or something that he should go revisit the research and that was when he like it fell onto his hand or something and he got uh contact high from it and was like whoa what just happened Right. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty you can easily stumble over some of this stuff and not notice you've discovered anything at all. And you could just think it's like an accident or something or that something went wrong. Definitely. Right. And I think that that's part of the uh, danger of being very dogmatic. And, you know, there is definitely something to discipline. Right. I mean, I think we both think discipline is, you know, for sure a useful skill to have. But then there's also you need to leave room for, I guess, welcoming the unexpected too at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It's like you got to have enough of that mix to be able to take advantage of this stuff when it comes up while still allowing it to happen, but also continuing your work. I feel like you can't actually put a hard constraint on it. You just have to sort of, I don't know, like try to keep an open mind. That's sort of what the whole book is about is how do you foster that serendipitous mindset? Right. Which is actually, I mean, it a lot of it kind of reminds me of anti-fragile. Because uh, Taleb talks about it in the book. Definitely. Right. Where he says that like a big part of maximizing upside while minimizing downside is sort of expo- or exposing yourself to potential serendipitous events. Or like he mentions going to cocktail parties is a great example because you might not meet anyone and then you've got a very small loss, but you might meet someone, you know, who changes your life and that could be a massive gain. Right. But you have to, one, open yourself up to the chance of that happening by being at the event. And then two, be able to recognize when you have met someone, right, that could have a meaningful impact on your life that you, you know, connect with. Uh, And that's like a perfect example of trying to harness serendipity for your own benefit. Right, exactly. I got a lot of anti-fragile vibes from this as well. Yeah, I was was actually going to say that one way that in this book, at least they talked about these researchers 
doing that is like, so like Fleming from penicillin again was a good example where he like didn't throw away his Petri dishes right away. Like he was kind of messy. Yeah. And like, <laughs> right. Like, so his, his desk space and his lab weren't that orderly. Whereas, you know, if he threw them away right away, he would have never, he would have for sure never made this discovery, but it's kind of like by letting that randomness happen. I think even the author said he would have a chance to look at every dish twice um, whether by design or not, you know, who knows, but it was like, he would have a chance to look at it obviously when he needed to, but then the second time was when he was finally cleaning up his lab and would throw it away. He would get a chance to take a look again. And that's the second time is actually when the penicillin discovery happened. So there's something to be said for not being too orderly <laughs> yeah, and not necessarily structuring your time. in like, uh, you know, probably this is more applicable for all of us, uh, not structuring your time in like a life hacker, you know, every minute of the day scheduled kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, so serendipity, it like ends up being, I guess, like the main theme for the whole book. And like we said before, he's sort of getting at how scientists can try to foster more serendipity in their lab work and how we could change education and research grants and peer review and all of that to foster more of this serendipity. And I like the distinction he makes that, and this goes back to Thomas Kuhn's, I think it was an article on the theory or the structure of scientific revolutions, where, which is a really boring piece and I don't recommend anyone read it. The gist is good enough. <laughs> I took a philosophy of science class in college and we had to read it and it was painful. But anyway, Kuhn distincts, makes a distinction between normal and revolutionary science, right? Where normal science is researchers just working within the current paradigms and applying accumulated knowledge to existing defined problems, which he very dismissively refers to as puzzle solving. You're not really making much of any insight. You're just kind of figuring out small incremental improvements on the existing knowledge. In the startup world, you call it a 10% improvement, right? Or a one to N right. in, in Peter Thiel's language. But then revolutionary science is the the zero to one you know new discovery finding out something new where you break some of the old paradigms and you discover a completely new set of problems right this is the infinity generating discoveries that david deutsch talked about in the beginning of infinity and i think what myers would say is that these revolutions in science come about largely from serendipitous events because it's so hard to break ourselves out of the puzzle solving mode. And so we need some kind of weird accident to happen. And then, you know, to be able to recognize it and take advantage of it in order for these revolutions to actually come about. Well, and obviously, he's talking about uh, medicine here and science here. But I would actually say this applies to startups or, you know, to a lot of like any kind of any kind of new paradigm shifting idea, right? Whether it's a startup idea too. I mean, you see a lot of startup ideas just come serendipitously or someone's trying to solve their own problem, right? It's like very rarely through like the corporate innovation departments at large companies coming up with the paradigm shifting ideas and, and new products. Yeah. And even on a more micro level within a business making you know, marketing discoveries or something about users or there, there are all these little things that happen and a lot of it doesn't come from very systematically tracking and making inferences on the data as much as it just can jump out at you from 
what you're starting to think about, right? It can feel like that bolt from the blue sudden realization, but a lot of that I imagine is also sort of a serendipitous realization of what's in front of you from thinking about it in a way that you haven't before or you you know stumble on something or a story or find something in a related field and that makes you think about your field differently there's all these little things that can happen in pretty much any area of life right exactly but it requires having that serendipity tuned mindset in order to fully take advantage of it and i think he also talked about how that's kind of like the intuitive way of thinking right there's sort of like the uh, what was the first? There were like three different ones. It was like intuitive, creative, or imagination, and then there was a there was a first one that was more like the linear one. Oh yeah, here it is. So it's reason, intuition, and imagination. And he sort of says that the intuition level is where it's sort of like the bridge between like logic and pure creativity that leads to like the biggest breakthroughs, mm-hmm. which makes sense because we've talked about that before yeah. about how like after you have a uh, solid understanding of your field. If you can sort of still keep that open mind, you can come up with something that's that's really interesting. But there's almost like a level where if you have too much experience in a given field, you might not see the new thing because it's just hard to get out of the existing paradigm. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, that's the benefit of looking at multiple fields at once and not being too narrow, right? Oh, 100%. Because it opens you up to ideas from areas that you might not have thought about before. Exactly. And especially that other people in your field aren't thinking of. Exactly. It's the advantage of living at the intersections instead of like in the actual field itself. Right, right. It's also an advantage of reading widely. Yeah. Reading widely, looking at how other fields are doing the thing you're trying to do. I had one friend who does copywriting for websites, and he said he doesn't read any copywriting blogs. He just goes to the supermarket and looks at what magazines are doing. Hmm. And he says that's way more helpful because there's so much shelf space and magazines have to compete so much to get attention on the shelf that they've really refined a lot of their copywriting and visual techniques in order to maximize that. And so he gets good ideas from looking at what magazines are doing for copy. It's kind of a cool example of that. That's a really good idea. (laughs) Yeah, That's really cool to see. Now I think about it whenever I see a magazine. No, I can't. I can't help not thinking about it now. Right. That's really smart, though. That's like because they've put in a lot of uh, time and money and effort probably into perfecting that stuff. And if you can just piggyback on it, I mean, why why reinvent the wheel for those kinds of things? Exactly. That's probably why books like uh, Boron Letters stand up so well, because those core principles of you know copywriting, for example, apply across all fields. Mm. And this is kind of another place where he's talking about serendipity and serendipitous thinking as it applies to medicine and science. But as we're getting at, you can end up applying that to pretty much every field. It's really a way of thinking and operating, not just a way of doing science. A hundred percent. Yeah. The whole first chapter is really a I guess it's almost like a insight into how these scientists were thinking to lead to the discoveries that they got to. But it's it's less about the discoveries in the first chapter. It's much more about the way of thinking and the um I'm trying to like use a word here. It's like analogical, right? Oh yeah, here it is. Analogical thinking. Where he's talking about for create yeah, here's the quote. Analogical thinking has certainly been a cornerstone of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was higher up actually. So, okay, so I'm just going to read it from the book. So he's talking about how creative thinkers tend to take analogies and anomalies to higher levels. And then I'm going to skip a little bit. He says, 
Indeed, it is the recognition of anomalies, discrepancies, inconsistencies, and exceptions that often leads to the uncovering of a truth, perhaps one of greater magnitude than the one originally pursued. And that's another common theme that we see throughout this book, as we'll get into, is often they start off looking for something and end up on a totally different path than they started with. Right. The, and the biggest thing, too, is them kind of having the balls or insanity. It's hard to tell which one it is because there's a lot of narrative fallacy here, right? Of course. Yep. These are only the stories of people who stumbled on something and pursued it and it worked out. There may be plenty of people who stumbled on things and pursued them and they went nowhere and they ended up wasting their life, right? There probably are thousands. Oh, yeah. Probably more of them, right? It's kind of like the startup graveyard. Definitely more of them. Not not even probably. Definitely. <laughs> so that I think that's where it's hard to balance some of this because, you know, it, it's not necessarily that you should always be looking for the meaning in random accidents that occur because probably 99.9% of those accidents don't lead anywhere interesting. Uh, but those 99.9% don't get written about in books on serendipitous events. Right. And that's, I think, the tricky thing with applying some of this advice is that there is a lot of narrative fallacy involved here, but they do still make very good stories. Yeah, for sure. And it is still useful to think about. You just got to like hedge it. Right. Exactly. I think the other thing that's not, um, I guess, that we should we should also mention is that all of these people, to me at least, seemed that they had enough independence to sort of decide what research path to follow. Uh, that didn't seem like there yeah. was someone, yeah, like from up high telling him you have to go this way. And actually, Fleming mentioned this as well in his, I think, in his Nobel Prize speech, where he said if he was working on a on a research team at the time that he made this discovery, he would have just ignored it because it didn't have anything to do with what he was working on. Right. And so you know, it's kind of like that part is serendipitous, but it, I think it also speaks to the value of being sort of a free agent. You would sort of have the ability to go pursue these kinds of things, if there is something that catches your eye, like some type of anomaly. Yeah, well, that was a big part of what Myers starts recommending towards the end of the book, that basically the existing structure for scientific research and funding and everything is almost counter to the ability for these serendipitous events to happen, which is a shame. And it's probably why you see a lot of these discoveries coming from people who, like you said, had that independence or they had some special situation that made it easier for them to uh, you know, fall upon these new lines of thinking. Yeah, I was surprised he didn't include Darwin in the book, but Darwin mm -hmm. seems like a great example of it, right? Where his family was super well off and very into science. And so he could basically just, you know, study mollusks for eight years without too much concern <laughs> for money. And then get like sent off on a ship voyage because I think it was what was it like his dad thought that he was you know listless and not going anywhere in life right and then that's what led to you know him seeing the finches in the book Galapagos and all of that like that's a perfect example right but I think if somebody had told him to go study finches in the Galapagos he probably wouldn't have had the same realization right right exactly it's like the the constraints almost blind you to stuff outside of them which can be harmful for making these kinds of discoveries exactly he had enough open space in his in his mind to to actually you know kind of want to go make those discoveries on his own and i, I think you're right the darwin story would have been a good one to include here surprised he didn't i guess it doesn't have anything to do with well i mean directly have something to do with medicine although it does have a lot to do with medicine later on 
Yeah, that's true. Most of this was about medicine, but yeah, but I mean, it would have been a good serendipity example, but oh, well, I guess there were plenty of examples in this book anyway. Maybe ran out of space. Yeah, he had plenty of stuff to work with. Yeah, <laughs> like 35 chapters on examples, right? Yeah, because the, the way the book is structured is interesting is you got this long intro introducing the premise, and then you've got some 30 plus chapters. Each of them is a different example within a broader category. And then the conclusion of the book is kind of like the takeaways and what it should mean for uh, how we think about science and research and education. So the the middle of the book is very just like boom, 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 example, 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 example. They're fun stories, though. Some of them are very short and some are very long. It was an interesting way to structure the book. Yeah. And some are shocking in how like uh, the, the odds of them happening seems to be astronomically low. Oh, yeah. The penicillin one is the first. I mean, the penicillin one is just insane how that happened. It, it was like astronomically low multiplied by astronomically low multiplied by astronomically low. <laughs> yeah. Should we just I mean, that's the first one. Should we just jump into that chapter? Let's jump into it. Let's do it. Yeah. So basically, uh, the scientist Alexander Fleming, I uh, believe he was in London, right? Or he was in the UK for sure. Yeah, he was somewhere in Europe. I think London. Yeah. Yeah, it was London. He was definitely British. So yeah, it might have been London or... It says later down London. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of that that heat wave and the cool spell that happened. The heat wave thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this guy, he was a, he's a researcher in London. He, as we mentioned earlier, was a bit messy, didn't clean his Petri dishes. I believe he was away for two to three weeks, right? Um, he came back. He had a... His bench was crowded with 40 to 50 different dishes with different bacterial cultures, and as he was looking at one, he saw a um, a mold and there was a circular zone around the mold where there was no bacteria. Um, so it had been dissolved or you know sterilized in that section. So he got really uh, intrigued by that. And apparently he was such a bad presenter that when he shared this discovery with people, nobody got excited, right? I, I believe that was, I think twice. Didn't he share the discovery and it just sort of like fell flat? Yeah, no, I think he was like so unconfident or something that everyone just had like no reaction. And so I don't remember how he felt about that, whether he was super dismayed by it or if he was just like, oh, they don't understand. Because that was one of the big differences with some of the researchers. Some of them were like, oh, you don't understand. This is brilliant. Others like ended up writing themselves off. I don't think he wrote himself off, though. Well, it said that he maintained the culture of the the spores and of the of penicillin because well he didn't know it was penicillin at the time but he he maintained it because then it was like seven years later right when right that other researcher uh chain i think was the last name something like that uh there was another researcher in the same area this was seven i think it was seven years later it might have been six but i think it was seven realized that they were doing some research on different spores and their antibacterial potential and they found out that this one was in the same building as them so they decided to work with it and realized finally what they had on their hands so that was that was serendipitous example number two and then uh number three was i believe for the scale-up process right when they brought it to the u.s before we even get to that like the environmental factors that allowed Mm. the penicillin to exist at all yeah because i mean the the way it got on fleming's petri dish because he didn't put it there. Right. It was like a floor. Be- there, there was they were doing something with penicillin mold on the floor below him. And the spores had to basically travel up the staircase, you know, floating through the air and then float into his lab. 
contaminate the petri dish like literally as he is opening and closing it a very brief period and then it has to be one of the ones that's left there for the extended period there was a heat wave in london which allowed the spores to grow uh or no sorry there was a heat wave which would have prevented the spores to grow but the heat wave broke on the day that Fleming opened the dish and the penicillin got into the Petri dish. And then it was cool enough for the mold to actually grow and, you know, have those antibacterial properties. Right. It's just crazy. It's like, you know, one, he had to be in the same building as these people doing the penicillin research. Two, that the spores had to float up the stairs and get in his Petri dish. And then three, the weather had to break on the exact day that he was testing it and then four it had to get left around over it was like an easter vacation or something something like that yeah 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 and all of that is the only reason that this contamination happened in the first place and then on top of that he just doesn't get recognized for it for what seven eight years yeah they also said that he he pitched it like the wrong way he pitched it as a way to isolate bacterial comp like um colonies right so, so you could basically have instead of having them all jammed up together you could have like you could use this to separate them out instead of pitching it as a drug he was pitching it yeah that was how was that was how he first pitched it so you know as you said well, there he probably is probably didn't realize that it was antibacterial exactly right? or to the extent that it was antibacterial yeah so so to be i guess to reinforce your earlier point there's definitely a lot of narrative fallacy that goes on here that like he 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 didn't even realize initially what he had i think it took that second team to realize plus you also have to admit that world war 2 played a big part in this because that was a sort of necess- they needed a lot of antibacterial agents at that point in time which led to them trying to scale it up and then truly realizing what they had which which was a effectively painkiller without or not painkiller sorry uh antibacterial agent without pretty much any side effects yeah so yeah well even the scale up story is crazy the scale up story story is really cool too yeah the the one with the moldy cantaloupe <laughs> moldy mary well i was thinking of the yeah what was what was the corn syrup stuff oh yeah that's how it ended up in peoria anyway in the first place yeah they were looking for like a better growth medium i think yeah, uh, the corn steep liquor was a it was like a byproduct of some like cornstarch or something like that. And one of the biggest yeah. factories for that was like in Peoria, Illinois. And they just happened to have basically fled there when World War Two broke out. And so they were just in the exact right place where they found the thing that penicillin happened to thrive at growing in. Right. And like to, to understand the scale of it, there by 1944, the, the researchers left for the U.S. at the end of 1941. By 1944, uh, Merck, Squibb, and Pfizer were producing 130 billion units of penicillin per month, enough to treat all 40,000 soldiers wounded in D-Day. But the number in the U.K. where they didn't have this corn syrup stuff was... It, it was like not, e- it was in the tens of millions of units. Right. It was way, way less. It was something like one, one ten thousandth of as much output because they didn't have this discovery. And so if the researchers hadn't ended up in basically this small town, you know, Peoria, not like a small town, but it's, you know, it's not New York City, right? Right. <laughs> they, they never would have found this and we would not have, or would have taken much longer to create penicillin on the scale that. Uh, they were able to do so soon after and which allowed them to 
really saved so many more lives in World War II compared to how many died in World War I from infections. Yep. And they, I mean, the Moldy Mary story is great too, where the US government was asking for people to turn in mold samples in hopes that they would find another, oh, yeah. <laughs> another similar you know, a treatment agent, right? That that could be similarly as effective as penicillin. So people were bringing in different things. Labs were submitting different things. And this lady named Mary brought in a moldy cantaloupe that she found at some fruit market. And it turned out that like that had pet, like the same, I guess, mold that produces penicillin, but just at a much better, uh, had a much better yield than the one that they were currently using. So it was like over a hundred X the yield or something, right? Also, what's wild is that lady was in Peoria too. Yeah, she was in Peoria. (laughs) (laughs) She was working at the lab. She just went to a farmer's market and said, hey, this thing has mold on it and brought it in. And that was the mold. It's insane. I don't know if they ever found a better one than that. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if that had something to do with the fact that that corn steep liquor thing was in that same town that maybe there was like some co-evolution going on or something. I have no idea, but it just seems too much to be a coincidence. You know, that's like ridiculous <laughs> that that particular cantaloupe. Spooky. Yeah. It's aliens. Aliens. That's what it is. It's the aquatic apes, man. That's what they are. It's the aquatic apes. Yeah. <laughs> we had we had a great discussion of uh, aliens and aquatic apes before this episode in the bonus material, which you can get at patreon.com slash made you think for those of you who are not yet supporting the show. That was that was a fun bonus material. That was really fun. And we were planning out potential future episodes. Yeah, we're planning out potential future episodes and we want feedback on some of it. So uh, if you're not supporting the show yet, you should go check it out because that was that was a great bit of bonus audio. And just one example of what you can get on that Patreon. It is. Yeah, there's plenty of other examples, but uh, you'll have to stay tuned to find out all the other benefits. <laughs> all right. I think that's good on penicillin. Yeah. Penicillin is one of the longest ones, I think, because it's just such a wild story, which is probably why Myers opens the book with it. Yeah. It is particularly crazy. Yeah, it's the perfect example of what he's talking about. Ulcers is uh, the next one. Yeah, which we talked about before in the Skin in the Game episode, because Taleb mentioned it as a perfect example of skin in the game this is literally skin in the game <laughs> oh yeah this is this is soul in the game <laughs> so, yeah exactly i mean up until or i don't have the date here in my notes but up until sometime in the 90s i mean everyone thought that ulcers were caused by stress and spicy food and so there was this diet called the sippy diet which is a very cute name yeah that prescribed people to basically feed themselves like multiple times a day on milk and cheese and cereals and people would be on this diet for decades to try to cure their ulcers and it basically just didn't work (laughs) it was the only thing that they had and it just had a remarkably low rate of effectiveness so which it seems like somebody should have just said you know hey why even prescribe this if it's not working right (laughs) exactly but i guess it didn't uh dissuade people and so this guy marshall is doing what was he originally doing the research on where let me pull it up here he started to see i think he was doing something with like guinea pigs or rats and he autopsied them and then he was finding the bacteria in their stomachs along with 
the ulcer symptoms, and that was kind of a clue to him that there might be bacteria involved in the ulcers. It might not just be a stomach acid thing. Yeah, he used, well, it said his first, I'm reading this from the book, Marshall's first indication that the bacteria were clinically relevant occurred in September 1981 when he treated a patient with severe abdominal discomfort caused by gastritis with tetracycline, an antibiotic. After 14 days of treatment, the gastritis Mm. cleared up. That was kind of his first clue on, I think, that there was a bacteria that was particularly involved in this. Yeah. And I think you're right. There was something he was doing before that that was related. Yeah, he was doing some kind of research because he had proved that one of the things that the that Myers comes back to a lot is that Robert Koch, who is the guy who established kind of the basis of bacteriology in modern medicine, he had these three conditions to prove causation. And it was that the organism must be shown to be constantly present in characteristic form and arrangement in the diseased tissue. Pure cultures of the organism must be obtained and the pure culture must be shown to induce the disease experimentally. So uh, what Marshall had found was that in autopsying these, I think they were, they were definitely some sort of rodent, right? The bacteria that he suspected were causing ulcers were always there. Right. And he was able to obtain pure cultures of them from these autopsies, but he hadn't been able to prove that these bacteria could induce the disease experimentally. And so he just drank a bunch of them. <laughs> he got himself tested to prove he had no bacteria inflammation or inflammation you know in his stomach and then he just drank a bunch of the bacteria that he had cultured from these autopsies and sure enough a week later he started getting really bad ulcer symptoms he did a gastros gastroscopy i think yep, so that sounds about right gastroscopy maybe and that kind of proved he had the acute gastritis and that the bacteria had established themselves in his stomach. And then he started treating himself with an antibiotic and his symptoms went away. So he gave himself ulcers and then cured them to prove that this was the answer, that it wasn't this like spicy food stress general upset thing. It was a a, a bacteria causing them and it could be cured with simple antibiotics. Soul in the game. Soul in the game, seriously. And now that's how we cure ulcers. You just take an antibiotic and you're good to go. We should also mention that before that, um, there was a stat in here about the worldwide market for prescription ulcer medications before they figured out what was actually behind it. It was a class of drugs called acid inhibitors. Um, and it was in 1992 sales were $6 billion a year. They were the world's biggest selling prescription drugs. Wow. So there was also a strong incentive not to do this research. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you were one of those companies. If you're one of those companies, it's the last thing you want. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like all the companies that make statins, which Mm. we'll come back to later. Oh, yeah. We'll get back to that. But, you know, there's... If you if you look at the history of it, the acceptable range for cholesterol has been going down and down and down and down. And that's mostly driven by these drug companies trying to create stricter and stricter ranges for acceptable cholesterol levels so that more people get prescribed statins. Right. And you know what's wild about that is I feel like the statins thing is still not that well known. Yeah. And this book was written in 2007 and it was already is talking about this. Well, I mean, to be fair, in 2007, I feel like people still thought statins were a good thing. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I think that's because I mean, this we'll get to it later, but the book is very pro statins. Yeah, things have changed a bit, I guess, since then. 
Yeah, I feel like that the the whole knowledge about cholesterol has really only has the research changed? I don't know. I I feel like it has because a lot of the papers that I read related to it came out in the tens. Right. That's a good point. So some of that research would have come out after this. Yeah, and also I think the dangers of the uh the prescribed diets that were being given, that a lot of that has finally become in vogue recently. Well, and I think there the the tricky thing with it too is that most of the stuff that Myers says isn't wrong as we understand it now. It's just incomplete. Right. Right. Because you know what he mentions is that a high fat diet can lead to high cholesterol and coronary artery disease. But what we kind of know now is that a high fat diet combined with a lot of refined carbohydrates can lead to uh, significant LDL increases and increased cardiovascular risk and all of that. But it seems that a high fat diet without the refined carbohydrates does not carry the same risks. And I think there was something about he did mention about the LDL receptors, though, right? Right, right. About how people without the sufficient or I, yeah, I guess you can call it sufficient people without the sufficient number of LDL receptors. In those instances, cholesterol led to uh, the cholesterol would stick to the walls of yeah, here it is blood vessels, uh, which would disrupt the flow of blood to the heart and brain. But yeah, like, yeah. you're right, it's incomplete, the information that he gives here. It's not it's like half right, but that it doesn't tell the whole story. But it definitely reflects the common thinking at the time. For sure. And also to your point, there are still a lot of people who I think think that lowering their cholesterol is a good goal, right? Mm, yeah. But I, the thing that I think is craziest is that if you look at a lot of just longitudinal like cross-population studies on cholesterol and longevity, uh, high cholesterol is actually one of the biggest predictors of longevity. Yeah. I saw there was something I saw uh, two weeks ago about the potential link between higher levels of cholesterol. I think it was low cholesterol and uh, like neurological diseases. Yeah, well, neurological diseases and just all-cause mortality. Right. We're, we're not, I don't think anybody's entirely sure why, but there's a pretty strong relationship between low cholesterol and earlier death. Right. Just from anything. Which is... Which is scary. Yeah. Because then you've got tens of millions of Americans taking drugs to lower their cholesterol because they think it's making them healthier. But instead, it's potentially a risk factor for just early death. Yeah. Well, I think especially for men, too, it can really screw with your testosterone production. Because I think testosterone is made from cholesterol, or at least primarily from cholesterol. Yeah, it's a precursor or something. Cholesterol is a precursor for it? I think so. Something like that. So you need it to formulate it. I, I mean... Honestly, I mean, we're going to we're going to get back to this in the book, but I'm not surprised that Viagra became a huge necessary drug as the entire country shifted to a low fat diet. Right. Right. You take all of the testosterone precursors out of their diet and then, yeah, you're going to need a pill to get it up because your right. testosterone is going to go through the floor. Right. Exactly. The example I've given on previous episodes is that like your body wouldn't naturally produce something that would just be completely harmful. There's like no way, like you can eat no yeah. dietary cholesterol and you'll still have cholesterol. So there's something, yeah, there's some value to it. There's got to be some, you know, just like doesn't make any sense for that other, for it to be otherwise. And something like a quarter or a third of your brain's energy comes from cholesterol too. Yeah, there you go. You need it for brain function and for sex hormone production. And those both seem like really good things. They that seem pretty important. I want to have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two of the best things, actually, I would say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know why you would not want to do that. I think 
I was talking about this with my brother the other day. There's something about that era of like the 1950s through like the 1980s that there's so many things that have come out of that, which now we know to be just completely idiotic. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's like the margarine era, right? It's like the... Yeah, trans fats. Asbestos. Low fat diets, asbestos, cigarettes. Yep, there's so many things. That- I mean, there was a while where cigarettes were prescribed for people yeah. with coughs, right? <laughs> like, that was medicine. It's a weird era, but then it also makes me go, you know, like, okay, well, what are we doing now? That's exactly what the next part that I was going to say was, yeah. Although I, I think we can actually, we can answer that question. I think we can figure out some of them. So before we go there, the one thing I was going to say is that time frame, the 50s through the 80s, for whatever reason, was this, there was definitely, an, in my opinion overly faithful uh, reverence of science and like human ingenuity, I think. Yeah. It didn't seem at least from the outside, obviously we didn't live during that time. So it's hard to blanket everybody with this opinion, but it didn't seem like there was much thinking of like paleo or ancestral, I guess, logic to how your body does the things that it does. And it just didn't seem like that was the frame of reference that people were using. It could have been a cold war you know, American super competence, right? Like we can solve all problems with science. We went to the moon, we can make better food, we can, you know, make better everything through science. Like it could have just been something like that. Like that was the mentality. Whereas now that's shifted quite a bit, I think. Exactly. Yeah, it just seems different. What do you think those things are now that we're doing that we're going to look back on in 40 years and be like, Oh, God, that was so retarded. Social media. That's a good one. Smartphones. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say smartphones necessarily. I would say the hunching. Yeah, I think we're going to see really bad effects from because the so hunching like it wears down your vertebra and you can't grow that bone back as I understand it. So if you do it too much, you can give yourself a permanent hunch that you can't really recover from, except for surgery or stem cells and i think we're gonna see a lot of that issue yeah i guess stem cells might be able to do it um sitting that one's not really new but but i can see that i think the extended sitting will be a big one yep cars yeah cars is a good one but i think those like the big one that i could definitely see is uh well yeah i don't i don't know if this will necessarily ever be realized but it does feel like i don't know social media is one of those things for sure I feel like there is a pull away from it now. There is, for sure. Where more people are moving into private communities instead of these public ones. You're right. I see a lot more people in, you know, group chats, Facebook groups, Discord groups, Slack channels. Twitter is, you know, plugging along because we all just, you know, like yelling at each other on there. <laughs> but uh, the the whole like, oh, I'm just going to publicly share everything about my life. I feel like that is going to taper off. Yeah. I mean, it's becoming a little old. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Those are the big ones that I can I can see. I mean, do you think there's anything in the diet side? Um, it depends what you mean. I guess it depends whose perspective you're talking about from. Because if you think about the average American diet, then you could say all of it is fucked up. <laughs> um, all of it's screwed up. I'm worried about this carnivore diet thing. I feel like people are taking it too seriously. <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried it and I don't know nearly enough about it. It just, I don't know. It doesn't seem complete, but be wrong no i mean and the the thing with the carnivore diet is that there's there's absolutely no research or tests or studies or anything to back up it having any benefits at all one of our friends tried it what was what was his reaction well one that it was super hard i believe that and he under ate pretty dramatically and i think he broke it early because he was gonna like 
faint from undernourishment or something like that. Seems like a good reason. I just remember he he like had to stop because he just couldn't eat enough meat to fulfill his caloric needs, which would definitely be a struggle. Yeah. Another friend of mine, though, has done it and he reported really good effects. He did it for a whole month and he seemed to really like it. But the the feeling good is not a great indicator of a diet's effectiveness because well it's too narrow of a time frame too it's also yeah it's a very narrow time frame but the example i was going to give is that if you are eating a standard american diet and then you switch to a vegetarian diet you're probably going to feel really good but it's mostly because you're cutting out the the shake shack and the m&m well actually you can keep eating m&ms but you're cutting out the shake shack and the like pizza maybe if you're not eating cheese and like you're cutting out a lot of the shit but you're still most likely missing a ton of nutrients so it's not necessarily good for you it's just like less bad than other stuff right which is why it's not a bad direction if you're moving from the standard american diet to go that way and then make a shift later yeah it's a start it's a start exactly the the hard thing with a lot of these doing a diet for a short period like carnivore or keto and then saying that oh my god it was life-changing is that that effect might be coming from you not drinking alcohol for a month right like, I imagine if you just did that with your normal diet, you'd feel pretty good, too. And I, I'm pretty skeptical that, I mean, actually, we know you can't get everything that you need from just eating meat. There's some, like, essential, I think, minerals that you don't really get much of from meat eating. I don't remember what they are, though. You can get vitamin C from meat eating, right? Yeah, you can get most of the vitamins, actually. I think it's stuff like, what is it? I, I'd have to look this up. I, I know I saw it at some point. But, yeah, I mean, meat. If you eat like good grass-fed meat, actually has like most of the stuff that you need. But I think there's some things that it ends up lacking. Mm. You do have to eat a lot of it to get your vitamin C requirement, I think. But you can definitely survive on it because there are a few people who've been doing it for years. And and they're still alive, obviously. They're still alive. Yeah. But I, I don't think that will ever, I don't think that'll ever become big, right? It's not going to be like smoking where everyone's on a carnivore diet. Right. It's going to be kind of a, a, a niche thing. Um, eating three times a day that's one that's starting to go away thankfully yeah i can definitely see that one being one of those like why do we need to do that yeah a a, a small one that i notice is feeding dogs shitty food Mm. right like that's one that for some reason took longer than realizing that we were eating shitty food because you can have a you can know someone who eats super well themselves but then is buying like purina dog food right for their dogs and giving them greenies right both of which are just like pure grain and are pretty terrible for them long term yeah that's one i mean it it makes sense why that came later at least i can see why it makes sense that it came later but it's it's the domain dependence exactly yeah maybe uh maybe college college and college debt that could be one Ooh, that's a great one i 100 percent agree with you on that did you see all those stats the those graphs that I tweeted yesterday about college debt. Well, I didn't tweet them. Austin Allred tweeted them, and I retweeted them. But well, I have not, but I need to. They're just insane. It's like fifty percent of national or fifty percent of domestic debt right now is college debt or something. Wow. But yeah, it's, I think that will be a great example of it's uh, not necessarily like a medicine thing, but it is definitely something we will look back on and be like, whoa, okay, that was kind of insane. Do you think the whole educational model? that we currently have will be looked at that way? I hope so. I, I was actually having this conversation with Anthony yesterday. And Anthony, for reference, is the founder of Perfect Keto, one of the wonderful supporters of the show. Uh, and we were talking about how 
college is actually not that important because like if you've got a really smart independent thinking kid and you put them into a bad college they can work around the system and you know make of it what they can yeah they'll be okay especially with the internet yeah they'll they'll be fine especially with the internet right they'll be fine but if you have a kid in a really bad K through 12 program that's actually much more dangerous yeah because they might just get locked into these really narrow ways of thinking and studying by the book and all of that and so all of these efforts to, you know, fix college and change college are nice and well-intentioned, but they're actually much less important than trying to fix K through 12 because like that's super, you know, screwed up too. And I would never want to send my kids to public or most private schools, but you don't see as many people working on that problem, I feel. And I'm not sure how you best solve it. It also feels much more controversial. Does it? Yeah. Why does it feel more controversial? Just because fewer people are talking about it? Exactly. Right. So I think like criticizing the college structure is pretty expected now. I think there's a lot of people who do that. (laughs) So it's like, it doesn't feel very contrarian to say that. But then if you say like, you know, I don't think that the K through 12 structure will exist in 20 years, that feels more counterintuitive and like, I don't know, just feels, it just feels like I'm taking a bigger risk when I say that. Yeah, I feel like people look at you weird if you say you don't want to send your kids to public schools and stuff. Right, well... They think you're like a weird homeschooler. I was going to say there's probably a weird... Uh, they're viewing you like they're not sure how, like what perspective you're coming from when you say that. Yeah. Like when you say, I don't want to send my kids to public school, they're like, oh, is this some elitist here who only wants to send his kid to a $50,000 a year private school? And your response will, I'm guessing, be that... Most of those are not sufficient either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although that it's not a it's not a bad second best option. Mm. I think the public school is definitely the worst option. The expensive private schools are a less bad option. But I think we just need to make a new school system. That seems like the best solution. I would argue. I would put those in both of those in a distant third to the last option that you said, which was come up with a new system. Yeah. So I. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I would reverse the order. I would say public school would be slightly better than a expensive private school. Really? Why? Because at least at least you would get to interact with a very interesting set of people and get to build those skills if you were a smart kid already. I don't think that I think you would need to get some type of education outside of school, whether that was through the internet or through your parents or something like that. But if you were able to learn to navigate a very interesting social environment at a public school, I I just don't think there's a ton of value in the um, I I don't want a blanket statement all expensive private schools because there are some good ones out there. Yeah, but there are definitely a lot. At least I could say a lot of the ones in the D.C. area, because I know a lot of people that went to them, the expensive private schools. One thing that they definitely don't have comfort doing is speaking to a variety of different people, whether and that's not just from a race standpoint. It's also it's more from a socioeconomic standpoint, less from a race standpoint, because they do a good job, I would say, of having different races in there. But you know, it's yeah. you might have a lot, especially in DC, you'll have a lot of people who are like, especially the private schools, you'll be like, okay, this person works for an executive at a government contractor. This person works for, a, or not works for, their parents are, uh, one of their parents is a senator, one of their parents is a congressperson. And yeah, they might all be different races, but effectively they're the same strata of society, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. This is going to sound bad because it's probably not uh, politically correct. But I would rather send my kids to the 
school with all the rich people and have to teach them to interact with people from a different socioeconomic status outside of school, then send them to the public school where they're interacting with like the all walks of life. And I say that primarily because once your kids are in the school system, who their peers are ends up being a much bigger influence on, you know, how they develop and think and all that than, you know, what you do as a parent. That's a good point. And I think that trying to surround them, and I'm not saying like rich people are better. I'm saying that people who can get into a good private school are generally going to be smarter and more competent on average, which means they're probably not going to like be well, okay, there's a lot of drugs in private school too. <laughs> in general. I was going to say the drug dealers in high school are some of the most interesting people you meet. That too. Yeah. The, the, They're more entrepreneurial. The kids doing the right drugs are probably like the coolest people there. Um, and some of the smarter ones too. The people selling. Yeah, the people selling. But <laughs> I, I, I think that you you have a higher chance of your kid hanging out with other smart, motivated kids at a snooty private school than at a public school. And that would be my main concern. I think that's 100% true. Yeah. My my counterpoint would be that it's the type of smart is more of the rat race type smart. And that worries me. That's fair. Right. Of the like uh, the achievement mentality. Like, obviously, I went to CMU, so I, I have that as well. Um, but knowing where that leads, right? Like, I don't know if that's the best place to have like be mentally. But that said, I think it, yeah. there's so many factors that go into this because I think you could still have that mentality going to a public school too, and you could not have that mentality yeah. be at a private school. So private and public is probably not the only barometer. I'm, I'm guessing there's, it's just so hard to know from the outside, but I would just say most schools in general don't do a good job of that. I was going to say, I actually also feel like my public schools were less socioeconomically diversified than my private mm. school. Because when I went to public school in Northern Virginia, it's like one of the richest counties in the country, right? And so everyone was either like rich politician's son or rich Asian immigrant. Those are literally like the two or rich lawyer's child, right? Like those were literally the three demographics. There was not much else. Right. And all of the people who could afford to live in that area went to the same public schools. That's true because it was all based on the neighborhood you lived in. Yeah. At least at, at private school, you know, uh, Cho would pay for something like a quarter of the students each year oh, wow. to go there. So you'd have a lot of super competent people who grew up in very poor households, uh, as well as, you know, the uber rich like Thai royalty that all of their family, you know, gets flown across the country to go to school there. Right? You've got the whole spectrum. Right. And so I, I think that was actually more socioeconomically diverse. That makes more sense, actually. Yeah. You get the best of both then. You it's all hyper competent people. You wouldn't get that in a local private school. I agree with that. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you would get some, but probably not as much. It'd, it'd be hard for like Sidwell friends in DC to sponsor, you know, poor students from rural Virginia to go to school there because they're not going to drive two hours each way to go to high school. Right. Exactly. Because it's not a boarding school. Mm -hmm. It's not a boarding school. Yeah. So maybe that's the trick. You just send your kid to boarding school starting in kindergarten and They'll turn out great and you only have to deal with them for like six years then. And then there's somebody else's problem. <laughs> there you go. That's a plan. There we go. All right. <laughs> I'll have to run that one by Cosette later and see how she feels. That can be your backup plan too. starting your own school. <laughs> yeah. If, if your kid's just like super shitty and annoying, you just send them to boarding school at kindergarten <laughs> and you're, you're good to go. You get your life back. Yeah. I've heard that in the Bay Area, though, there's this dystopian thing that's happening where people live in these super expensive places. 
and pay re- like really high taxes for this school district and then like yeah many of the people don't even send their kids to those schools <laughs> which is <laughs> wild <laughs> it's like like think about how in northern virginia right people pay like a lot of times they're, they're paying that price to live in those neighborhoods so they can send their kids to these schools yeah it's effectively like paying for private school uh imagine doing that and then just like being like no we're not gonna actually send our kids to these schools that we pay a lot of money for <laughs> that's kind of crazy we'll pay another 50k a year <laughs> yeah of course yeah you got to get them into the uh the the best kindergarten in the area exactly right where they have to take the little the, the entrance test exactly uh, yeah i just gotta burn that whole system down the mentality that's the opposite of serendipity there yeah exactly <laughs> all right back to the book good tangent i think that was a solid 15 minute tangent at least a plus good people get what they paid for (laughs) should we hop back in with leukemia chemotherapy right oh yeah okay yeah let's hop back in with uh chemo this one was pretty crazy too this was world war was it one or two i want to say two oh it was two it had to be two because yeah so this shipping port in england got i guess not england yeah it was england it was in the uk somewhere uh got bombed by the axis powers and all of these sailors who were they they were on like the dock or something it set on fire they jumped into the water and then they were swimming around in the water for a while and when they got pulled out everyone could smell garlic and their eyes were stinging and all of this and it turned out they'd been swimming in a mix of water and mustard gas sounds pretty shitty yeah super shitty (laughs) and a lot of them ended up dying over the next few days they didn't sufficiently shower themselves off and change out of their clothes and all of that and that kind of turned researchers on to the possibility of they say here alkylating agents such as nitrogen mustard cause marrow and lymphoid depletion which led to their successful use in treating certain kinds of cancer. So they saw how these sailors were getting killed off by the mustard gas. They saw the mechanism by which it was happening. And then that gave them the clue that they could actually use it to target certain cancers in those places. And that basically started all of chemotherapy, which basically just means chemical therapy. Right. Right. It's like just using something as a therapy, usually to treat a cancer. But mustard gas was basically the first one or versions of it anyway. Right. Which is, um, you know, started by bombing a ship. Kind of wild. I, I think the funniest or not, I guess not funny, but the one interesting thing about that, too, was how controversial it was at the time, because chemical weapons like mustard gas were illegal. Right. You, like they were against the Geneva Convention. You couldn't use them in war uh, because they were so terrible in World War One. And so when all when it turned out that all these soldiers have been swimming around in mustard gas, it was a big deal. Like, okay, was that on the ships that got blown up? So the British had it and we're going to use it. Were the Germans dropping it? Right. Like, where did it come from? Because it shouldn't have been there. And as I understood it from the book, everyone just kind of tried to cover this disaster up. It didn't get reported in the UK papers, didn't get reported in the US papers. We only found out about it years after the war. And a lot of this research didn't happen for years, too, because nobody knew about this event because it couldn't be publicized. Right. And, you know, my first reaction to that was the British must have had it on the ship. Oh, yeah. But then the other but the other side of that could be the British didn't have it on the ship, that it was part of the bomb. And they just didn't want the Germans to find out that, like, 
they knew about it or something, or maybe they retaliated. Or, you know, who knows? There must there might be other reasons for why they didn't want to publicize it. I'm surprised that like I'm surprised the Germans didn't talk about it. Well, maybe they wouldn't have known, right? I guess the British didn't report it. Yeah, I think as long as the British didn't report it, the Germans would have had no idea. Yeah. And to be fair, there was there was some reason for the Germans to or for the British to have mustard gas because I think Churchill had given some warning to the Axis powers that if they used any chemical weapons, there would just be like a massive retaliatory strike against them. Yeah, there was some game theory. And so there was a little bit of a, yeah, kind of like a, not an arms race, but a mutually assured destruction with chemical weapons where like nobody wanted to wish that upon their citizens, but everybody had to have some just in case. Right. Just And, and as a deterrent, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's a good deterrent. So it's very possible they just had them hanging out there at the docks and they knew they were spies so you couldn't be like okay we'll just tell them we have them and hopefully they'll believe us <laughs> right you probably needed to actually have <laughs> yeah <them>. exactly <laughs> <laughs> that would be the craziest thing if like 30 years into the cold war you find out that the soviet union doesn't actually have any nukes that would be amazing <laughs> it's been like fake the whole time that was my first theory for north korea when they first started talking it was like several years ago when they started talking about nukes mm. i was like how are they going to develop nukes this is north korea they're probably just bluffing because we sold them to them someone sold them yeah clinton did oh wow i didn't know that i don't think he sold them a functional nuke but he sold them like some of the technology let me look it up for what purpose like what would we get out of that all right i'm immediately retracting what i said (laughs) about clinton helping them build nuclear reactors so he struck that deal where, and you can listen to the full explanation of my investigation of this in the bonus material on Patreon, but Clinton had a deal going where he was going to give North Korea $5 billion and two light nuclear reactors, but the whole deal fell through. It never really came to fruition because it turned out North Korea was continuing to enrich uranium, which uh, was in direct kind of contradiction with the deal. And so the whole thing got cut off when George W. Bush became president. So never actually ended up happening. And that that is all. It was fake news. <laughs> so be careful. And, you know, I, this is why this is why you can, you know, hopefully trust us a little bit is that we we try to correct our our fake news. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Somebody else. Somebody else called us out for fake news. Hold on. We got to go find it right now because we're, while we're on the fake news uh, train, we got to. Oh, I remember what it was. The the Google health trends. When did we talk about it? Uh, But we said in some episode that Google data could predict disease outbreaks and spreads and everything. And it turns out that is not true. That has been since falsified. That was in one of the books we read, I think. It was in Merchants of Doubt, maybe. I see. Was it that episode? When did somebody tell you about this? Uh, They posted it on the Patreon. So shout out to... Man, Patreon is really poorly organized for seeing what people have messaged you about. It's like hilariously poorly organized. Okay, here we go. The Google flu trends thing mentioned in episode 35 has been disproven. There was not further evidence that they could predict epidemics before they happened. So thank you, Bill May, for pointing that out. Episode 35 was, let's see, uh, Homo Deus. Ah, interesting. Oh, I think that was in, that was definitely in the book. I think it was in the book. Yeah. So we got to send that to uh, our buddy Yuval as well. Let him know that made a mistake spreading fake news so i found it i did find an article that they have they tried to do it for sars and for influenza i don't know if it worked but there was an effort to do it at least at google 
Yeah. It might not have worked, right? So that's probably what was disproven. They might have tried. Yeah, it, it might have not worked. They might have gotten lucky once with influenza or something, and then they tried to generalize it, and it didn't work. Yeah. I believe that. There was an article from this year, actually, like three months ago, talking about how Google can predict where syphilis outbreaks will happen. Oh, interesting. But I don't know, again, I don't know if it was actually done or if, like, from this article, it looks like they made, like, an announcement about it. But it, I don't know how accurately can be done. It's just from people Googling it. Is this, like, still a thing in the U.S.? Uh, apparently. Well, I'm sure nobody dies of it. No, it's probably not as okay. bad as it once. Like, I mean, from this book, they were even talking about syphilis. Yeah. 28,000 cases in 2016. So not a lot. Yeah, definitely not that much. But yeah, it said they were using search data yeah. to try to do that. Interesting. But in a one week time frame, there were 7,750 people who Googled it hmm. in a geographically similar area. <laughs> Yeah. that oh. sounds like an outbreak to me. <laughs> it's funny. sounds like an outbreak yeah but that but it doesn't seem like there was much more than that because well, i guess for the first few weeks after you get it the symptoms are pretty brutal and then it just sort of hides in your body for 20 years until it kills you yeah well i think without antibiotics right yeah but if you take an antibiotic at any time in those 20 years it's gone so so you're probably okay yeah it would be hard to imagine someone actually dying from it these days it's like antibiotics in your meat unless there's some antibiotic resistance but even then go get a burger and you've got antibiotics <laughs> that's true that's a good point yes just go to mcdonald's or something there you go you're done no more syphilis there you go there's your antibiotics it's cheaper than going to the doctor yeah. <laughs> you can uh you can get those fish antibiotics on amazon yeah. wait really oh have you not seen this no if you go to amazon and you search for aquarium antibiotics you can just buy them so it's for like if your fish are sick but i mean they're like the exact same antibiotics that we take ourselves. And there is just all these reviews of people saying like my fish had a really bad cough <laughs> and these fish antibiotics like cleared it right up. The reviews are <laughs> hilarious. I highly recommend. First go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support. Click on the Amazon link and then go check out the review. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. We got to get back to the book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're on an exceptional tangent at this point so we went through chemotherapy we went through chemo we've gotten through three of those 30 some chapters in the the hour and a half we've been going now the leukemia wasn't wasn't as interesting to me even though like obviously it was a very strong like it's a very bad disease and it was great that they were able to solve it. but it wasn't as like they kind of like discovered that folic acid was an important thing right um let's skip down to the sex hormone one because i think that's the most interesting next one here yeah uh, that this guy was doing studies on the effects of castrating dogs. And he noticed that when he castrated them, certain like small tumorous growths would recede. And so he developed this theory that some cancers were sex hormone induced or at least affected. And in, in particular, the sex related cancers like prostate cancer. And that gave him the idea to try using estrogen on men who had prostate cancer and lo and behold, it was incredibly effective in slowing or even stopping the spread of those kinds of cancers, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Also a pretty interesting insight to be able to find that. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing in there that I didn't totally understand is it kind of says that you can't castrate a human as a medical treatment. I mean, I guess you could, but people probably would just say, I'd rather not and choose to just let the cancer continue, maybe. 
Maybe, yeah. I guess, I don't know, like, what would be worse, being on estrogen for the rest of your life or getting castrated? Probably getting castrated. <laughs> I think I could... I guess. I think I could pretty solidly say getting castrated would be worse. Although, it doesn't say what the other effects of the estrogen were. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, how much estrogen are we talking here? Yeah, because I'm just thinking, would it be better to dramatically reduce your testosterone production, or would it be worse to pump up your estrogen to an unnatural level, right? Yeah. Because like, I don't know which life would be preferable. That's probably another experiment that probably won't will be very difficult for somebody to do. <laughs> yeah, it's like you just can't do these tests anymore. <laughs> anymore, yeah. Anymore. That's true. Back in the day, man. Back in the day before the FDA got involved. No. <laughs> before, before the FDA. It's like all those controversial wartime tests on prisoners, right? Right. It's like super fucked up and should not have been done, but we got good data from them. Yeah. Yeah, like the Nazi tests too that they had done. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's probably the biggest example. And then was it Japan? I think the Japanese did a lot of super fucked up stuff to Chinese prisoners that we got medical data from as well. We've done the same for pr like people in jail too. Oh, yeah. And uh, like poor black people in certain areas around the US. So what was the... Actually, there was something with syphilis. Yeah, there was right? something with syphilis. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't we just like give a whole bunch of poor people syphilis somewhere in the US and to like see what would happen? Yeah. Am I making that up? No, I don't think you are. I'm going to look this up right now. We have a lot of lookups going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just searched syphilis US government. The Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. God, that sounds so racist. Sounds oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's an actual journal article title. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Holy shit. It ran for 40 years. That's really bad. So they tricked these poor people. They tricked poor rural African-American men into thinking they were getting free health care when they were really testing to see who had syphilis and who didn't and then just watching what happened over 40 years. Wow. This is so fucked up. So this is where, like, I got to say that, like, when everybody says, like, for any kind of conspiracy, like, I always follow, I believe in this, like, because it's, it, it makes sense. Yeah. That, like, when there's any kind of conspiracy, you got to say, like, how were we able, people able to keep it under wraps for so long? Like, this is one of those. How did it last for 40 years? Oh, yeah. None of the men infected were ever told that they had the disease and none were ever treated with penicillin even after the antibiotic was proven to successfully treat syphilis. The men were told they were being treated for bad blood. The wow. the whistleblower didn't come out until 1972. My God. Which is the year it ended. It says, the victims of study, all African-American, included numerous men who died of syphilis, 40 wives who contracted the disease, and 19 children born with congenital syphilis. Jesus. Uh, that's really bad. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. But yeah, these are the kinds of studies which are... Not good. That was another, uh, That that's an interesting tangent, which maybe we, we can avoid going on the full tangent. But like this point in time, was this also when like eugenics was becoming mainstream? Uh, it would have been being discussed a lot because that overlapped with um, Nazi Germany. Right. Right. That was like a very eugenic movement. Right. I think it's, it's also the social Darwinism era too, right? Exactly. So it was when that type of thinking was going more mainstream. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, again, it's super fucked up, but you can imagine that the scientists were not thinking of these test subjects as other people. Right. They were just thinking about them as subhuman. Like, that's probably how they rationalized it to themselves. Yeah. Which is Damn. wild. Whew. This is the dark underbelly of medicine. Yeah, seriously, man. I wonder, I don't know, think there's anything like that going on right now. 
I don't know. Probably. Uh, I, I don't want to say probably not. Probably not in the U.S. It'd be pretty hard to it'd be hard to get away with. Yeah, I could see something happening with prisoners, though, like people in jail. Mm. Just you don't hear much about prisoners in jail, right? To really find out. Well, yeah, there's some stuff with like drug testing on prisoners and poor people, I think. That a lot of it doesn't get reported. I don't know. I I, I I might be spreading a conspiracy again. Yeah, it's just I'm very sensitive to my my fake news tendency <laughs> after the Bill Clinton debacle 20 minutes ago. Sorry, Bill. Well, uh, maybe not so much in the U.S., but I think there's probably stuff going on in other countries. I would imagine. Yeah, and some other countries. Russian gulags. Yeah. How long can you leave someone out in the Siberian cold and test how long they can they can survive? Yeah. All right. Let, let's skip ahead to the heart because we're. We are making very little headway here, and the first story... Thalidomide is pretty interesting. We do that one first. Oh, yeah, okay. We can Let's talk about thalidomide briefly. So that was one where uh, I think they were marketing it as a sedative, right, in Germany. Yeah. And they were marketing it throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. Sedative in pain management, I think. Yep. Sedative in pain management. It was like, uh, like an aspirin. Right, and they said it was like a very mild, like not too many side effects, and it was basically just being widely widely distributed and they apparently didn't do any testing on safety or effectiveness before starting to sell it was it sold in the u.s or not i think he mentioned it was not sold in the u.s right yeah so the u.s avoided most of the problems because we had set up the fda before this like the early version of the fda for something else that was in this book i don't remember what the oh i saw that uh, spark of it was yeah give me one second i can find it yeah, okay. So there was a company that was marketing a sulfa drug for people and to make it easily administratable for children, they created a sweet liquid form and then they dissolved the drug in something called diethyl glycol, which is a solvent used to make antifreeze and apparently it was toxic. Oh yeah, that's what. Yeah, and it killed over 100 people, most of them children. So then FDR created yeah. uh he signed into law the Food Drug and Cosmetic Act which required safety tests before they could be marketed. Yeah, and so I think that's how we avoided most of the thalidomide debacle. But yeah, um, I mean, pretty famously, it ended up uh, kids were being born with crazy birth defects, like no arms or like missing their eyes and really screwed up children from something in the drug. Yep. And so obviously crazy public health disaster, everything terrible. But then 32 years later, someone realized that since thalidomide operates by or partially operated by mildly inhibiting inhibiting the growth of new blood vessels, it could actually be used to prevent tumor formation, which is amazing. And so I think it still has a life now as a anti-cancer drug. Yeah, I think so. But dude, can you imagine going into your doctor and having cancer and then being like, all right, this is going to sound weird, but I want to give you thalidomide. If I hadn't read this book, I would be like, fuck no, man. I'm yeah, bad news. Uh, I, but, I agree. Hey, if it works. Although I guess in their defense, the only effects seem to be on children, on like unborn children. Yeah, it seemed like that was really the only major side effect was that it inhibited fetus production. Which is a huge side effect, of course. Exactly. It's not a small deal. But Yeah, but I can see why if you're like, you know, a 50 year old and you're diagnosed with cancer, why it would, would actually probably be safer than some of the other cancer drugs that are out there. So I don't know, though, if if a drug is going to like destroy a child that would be born from your body, it's got to be doing something else to you. That's pretty terrible. Now, granted, if you have cancer. All right. Right. That's whatever it's doing is probably less bad than what the cancer will do to you. But are you familiar with uh, 
what's it called? Oh, you know what? This might be the thing that we look back on being like, holy shit, that was insane. Oh, gosh, what's it called? Accutane. There we go. No. Okay, so Accutane is this crazy acne drug for people who have really bad acne that doesn't respond to other drugs. Is it a prescription acne drug? It is a prescription acne drug. Now, this drug is so intense that you cannot drink alcohol on it. And if you're a woman, you're either required to be on birth control or required to get regular pregnancy tests because if you have a child on it, it like seriously fucks up the child, right? So this is a drug that kids are taking because they have acne and it does so much damage to their bodies in other ways that they literally like can't give birth. Jeez. Which seems incredibly insane. Just for acne, basically? I know acne's not like... Just for acne. Wow. Acne's not going to hurt you. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah, this seems like... What is it? It's like it's like taking a... I don't know. It's like using like a, a bulldozer to do something that like a hammer could do or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or like killing a fly with a shotgun. Yeah. Right? I mean, and the, the acne treatment in general, I think, is insane. And most dermatologists, most dermatologists are like making the world worse. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I was... 13 or 14, I had pretty bad acne and I got prescribed doxycycline, which is like a relatively potent antibiotic. Yeah. Yep. And I was on that for, I think, two years. It did jack shit for my acne. Yep. I didn't do anything. Oh, yeah. It did absolutely nothing. But, you know, it's like, oh, well, doctor said this is what I should do. And meanwhile, it was just like raping and pillaging my whole microbiome. Yep. So. Well, and, and not just your microbiome, but like, uh, the, so the best research I was able to find about what people think really causes acne today it's actually your skin microbiome. Mm. It's funny enough. So at, at Estee, one of the research things that people were looking into, and, and I think a lot of other companies are also looking into it, is actually how cleansers can increase the chance of you getting acne because you're effectively killing. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, you're killing everything else that's selectively competing for the niche that lives on your face. Yeah. And you're also removing all the oils that apparently have some anti-acne properties of their own. And instead, you're effectively creating this clear battleground for acne to come in and win. Well, it's like uh, latex gloves, right? They transmit way more oh, yeah. <laughs> bacteria than your hands because your hands have a built-in defense system, right. <laughs> whereas latex gloves are a perfectly sterile environment, right? <laughs> or, uh, I mean, diet is such a big thing with it too, yeah. right? I mean, my friend had like really bad eczema for pretty much her entire life. And well, since she went through puberty and got put on like steroids and pretty much everything under the sun for it, nothing really did anything. She did a keto diet for a month and it went away and didn't come back. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> like, that's the craziest part is that even when she went back off keto, it pretty much stayed away. It came back like 10% of the extent it was before. That makes me think it was some type of microbiome issue, right? Because your body changes, your microbiome changes with your diet pretty significantly. Yeah, so it could have revitalized the biome. Yep. And then it was strong enough to stick around. Yep. That makes sense. I believe that. I mean, it's a possibility for sure. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Like, it, it's crazy that they would prescribe steroids for something like that. <laughs> That's a really common prescription for uh, eczema. Jeez. Well, because, the, I mean, the, the theory on what it is is an autoimmune disorder. Right. And so you prescribe, like, immune-boosting steroids to help your body deal with it, I guess. And it kind of works, but you don't really want to be on steroids for your whole life. It wouldn't be immune boosting. It would be immunocompromising. 
Because autoimmune is your overactive. Oh, is that how it works? Yeah, well, autoimmune is overactive immune system. Over, Yeah, exactly. You need an immune compromising agent. Yeah, which I wonder if what other side yeah. effects that has. But yeah, it's amazing that her eczema went away with keto diet. But I, I can believe it for sure. Yeah, I don't know. The body's cool, man. The body's cool. The body's very cool. A deep dive. Uh, but oh, the one thing I wanted to say, the last thing I wanted to say about that was related to your shampoo, like you're not doing not shampooing thing. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of the cleansing as well, because I mean, think about it. Ancestrally, people I don't think were using like a daily cleanser <laughs> on their face. No, <laughs> They're probably washing their face. I could see that. Well, and, and th- this is the thing with like mud and dirt, too, is that I actually don't think you really need soaps to get rid of any of that as long as you Mm -hmm. still have your natural body oils Mm. because i noticed this with pepper my dog is that she can get decently muddy or dirty running around at the park but then within a day or two it's out of her fur it doesn't stick around right and i think that that's just a function of like that's what your body is meant to do right it's supposed to be able to handle that stuff and I haven't used shampoo in two years now. And when I did the Spartan race a month ago, I was just covered in mud, right? Like everywhere. If you want to see the pictures, go to Nat's Instagram page. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're great. Um, And I debated using shampoo then. I was like, oh my God, my hair is so dirty. This is going to be insane. But I said, okay, like, let's just try rinsing without it first and see what happens. And it all just immediately came out, right? I'm not saying that it wouldn't have with if I had been using shampoo regularly, but it, I feel like a lot of these assumptions just kind of go untested, right? Yeah, definitely. But you need a supplement to do something your body can do pretty well on its own. Definitely. Anyway, another good tangent. Lots of good tangents. I think we've actually done more tangents than book content today. We're like at 50-50. Probably 50-50, yeah. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to let us know what, what tangent ratio y'all like. So we can uh, adjust accordingly. Yeah. We'll have a little stopwatch. I'm just like, oh, we haven't done enough tangents. We better think of something random. <laughs> just talk about aquatic apes and the blockchain more. Some episodes we don't do any. So yeah, that's true. We've had a few episodes where we don't do any tangents. They just they feel wrong. Yeah, they feel as natural. People complain, but not really <laughs> about the tangents or about the lack of. No, one the one lack person of. left us a negative review that we had too many tangents. I was like, what do you think you're getting? Yeah. <laughs> Did they really? I don't think I saw that one. Yeah, it's it's one of it's one of our very few bad reviews on iTunes is that we go on too many tangents and don't stick to the book. That's like the point of the show. Yeah, exactly. What exactly do you think you're signing up for? <laughs> maybe we should add that to the show description. I don't think it's in there right now. Maybe maybe we're false advertising. Uh, maybe. So people come in for the first time and then they're like, I came to learn about happy accidents, not about Bill Clinton myths and <laughs> shampoo and and private schools tuskegee scandal and private schools wow yeah we've had a lot of tangents yeah. all right let's talk about the heart because we're less than a quarter of the way through the examples i think the, the the biggest one here is the catheterization which was insane because i guess there was this thing where you couldn't really mess with the heart in a lot of medical disciplines in the early 1900s it was considered like a sacred part of the body that you didn't want to do anything with And uh, this guy figured out that he could run a catheter into his heart in order for like, you know, uh, x-rays and stuff and seeing the fluids running around to look for tumors or whatnot. And he couldn't test it because there were all these rules against like doing anything with the heart. And so he I'll just read this from the book. He gained the trust of the surgical nurse who provided access to the necessary instruments. Right. So he couldn't get access to do these tests. 
Uh, but he, I guess, like flirted with this nurse until she gave him access to the instruments. Good move. And she was so carried away by his vision that she volunteered herself to undergo the experiment. So he pretended to go along with her and he strapped her down to the table in an operating room. And then when she wasn't looking, he anesthesia anesthetized. I don't know how to pronounce this word. He, you know, numbed his own left elbow crease and then exposed his own vein and manipulated a urinal catheter 30 centimeters toward his heart. And so he gave himself a heart catheter to prove that it could work, which is like pretty badass. That's another soul in the game example. Oh, yeah. Hardcore soul in the game. But this is the shitty thing is that after this happened, everyone was so pissed at him for doing it that he basically got kicked out of doing surgery. Yeah. And so the only way he could keep doing this research was he would keep these dogs at his mom's house, go to his mom's house, knock the dogs out with morphine, stuff them in a potato sack, sneak them into the hospital, and then run catheters through them and inject dye into their heart and, you know, watch it through the x-ray and see how it happened. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Just like the balls on this guy, too. (laughs) Just like all of like this whole story, right? I mean, he was clearly carried by some vision that he had to make this happen yep i also like the story where he was testing it it was him or somebody who came after him was testing it on uh like a live person for one of the first times and he accidentally injected 10 times as much dye as he should have oh yeah yeah it stopped the guy's heart but he was still conscious and so the researcher just told him to cough and then coughing was enough to restart his heart it's like okay that's wild that was almost really really bad yeah pretty crazy yeah, well the other thing on this chapter i loved uh which i'm sure you were planning to get to was the urology one the american urological association meeting at the end i think that's actually in the next chapter i think i i think i mislabeled my headings because it doesn't oh you moved it up yeah it doesn't make sense in this chapter i think it's got to be in the viagra chapter well a catheter goes through your penis it can oh you're right you know what that that might be in the right place okay i take it back go ahead yeah i think because yeah urologists are involved in catheters i think they're probably the ones who do it mostly yeah yeah but yeah (laughs) so i'm just gonna read this from the book because there's no way to improve on this the annual scientific meeting of the american urological association is usually a pretty stated stated affair stated stated i don't think i've ever said that out loud yeah there's a lot of hard words in this book yeah But one meeting has entered the annals of folklore in the early 1980s during the course of his lecture on the effectiveness of injecting substances directly into the penis to increase blood flow. One urologist announced that he had performed such injections on himself only an hour earlier. Stepping from behind the lectern, he dropped his trousers and proudly demonstrated to the audience his own erect manhood. Urologists who attended this meeting still shake their heads at the memory. That's amazing. That's got to be like one of the best presentations ever. Oh, yeah. And skin in the game. <laughs> well, maybe too much skin in the game. Maybe too much skin in the game. but yeah. <laughs> We don't want that much skin in the game. If you're, <laughs> you can walk that back a little bit. I think Taleb missed an opportunity to include that example in his book. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a great example. I wonder if people still do self-experimentation. I bet they do. They must. They must. It can't be like something that just stopped. I feel like that still happens yeah all right are we moving on to viagra okay so viagra uh let's see they were trying to treat angina which is a very funny named affliction to have yeah that's one of the things you probably giggle about it the first few times in med school i would anyway i was gonna say i'd probably giggle if i heard that word yeah just a little bit 
But <laughs> so they were developing this compound to try to treat it, and it wasn't really working on circulation and heart function. And so they altered the dose. And then instead of affecting circulation in the heart, it boosted blood flow to the penis. And so all of these impotent patients experienced restored penile erectile function, which is probably a very funny. Imagine being like one of those test subjects and like sitting on the table, taking this drug and being monitored and you're just trying to hide a boner. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh, this is really awkward. Yeah. You're probably just embarrassed about it because you think that it's something like you might be the only one. Yeah. I don't know what would make it funnier is if you had like a super attractive doctor administering the test or a super unattractive doctor administering the test yeah. right or if it was, if it was all a super male. unattractive doctor or i was gonna say or if it was like all male doctors and you were under the impression that you were straight and then you were just getting like just all guys in the room and you're just rock hard yeah and you're just like oh i'm i'm, I'm very confused right now <laughs> did you give me a drug that changes my sexual preference exactly <laughs> it's a remarkable breakthrough that would be hilarious if that was the first thing they concluded that would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh uh. <laughs> but the, the cool thing about this or interesting thing about this too is that up until the discovery of this drug the term they used for erectile dysfunction was impotence right because they thought it was kind of like permanent but now that they saw that oh you could use a drug to cure it it just became a dysfunction that you need a drug for right this very uh have you heard words that work by frank luntz no but you've recommended it a couple times on the show this is a perfect example of it how the way you phrase something has a huge impact on how you think about it right like pro-life and pro-choice yeah this is you know impotence oh i'm stuck this way my penis is never going to work again erectile dysfunction is oh it's just yeah it's like malfunctioning i just need a little blue pill and good to go right exactly and then it makes it seem like you something you need a drug for for sure exactly and then they can sell it to you how convenient it's crazy this stat is insane worldwide sales were 788 million dollars in its first nine months on the market in 1998 yeah that's wild in 2004 up to 300,000 men were taking viagra weekly i feel like the numbers are probably higher than that even oh it's got to be higher like i wonder if that's just u.s yeah, let's see. And I know there's a big black market for these things, too. Yeah. Because, like, I have heard, too, that, um, what is it, like, in Asia, I think they have, like, generic versions, effectively, that are, like, mm-hmm. I think breaking copyright or patent rules, but they just, like, I mean, I've heard that's rampant in China and India anyway, and they're just, like, widely available. So probably if you look at the actual drug and not the brand name, it's probably an order of magnitude higher than this, I would imagine. Just crazy. I'm trying to find Viagra stats, and there's a CVS.com uh, patient statistics page for it. And there's a five out of five rating. And the only description is it allows a 54 year old to keep up with a 31 year old exclamation point. <laughs> That's on the product page description. No, these are these are patient reviews of the drug. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah. One percent of people taking it are women. I wonder why a woman would take Viagra. Interesting. Yeah. Worth Googling, maybe. Let's see. Huh. Why would a woman take Viagra? Apparently, it produces better arousal and sensation. Oh, you know what? I've heard of that because, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? The clitoris is yeah, blood flow. basically the penis. Do I have that right? Yeah. It's like, it's like the head of the penis. And so theoretically, if the drug increases blood flow to the penis, it should increase blood flow to at least some parts of the vaginal area. What's the whole area called? Because the vagina is the cavity. Uh, anyway. 
either either to the clitoris or the pubic region parts of the vagina you could see it increasing yeah pelvic region you could see it increasing arousal and yeah probably i would imagine have some effect on orgasm strength too right probably you're the one who wrote the book on this you should know (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to we have to look look that up but anyway yeah it says prescriptions have more than tripled in the last 10 years so there are probably over a million men taking it weekly now it's a lot yeah that is a subscription business if I've ever seen one. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Talk about monthly recurring revenue. Yeah. <laughs> Your biggest competitor is probably death. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine saying that? Netflix had... They said sleep. Yeah, they said sleep is their biggest competitor. <laughs> it's just like, oof. It's it's a little too accurate and dystopian <laughs> yeah. for my liking. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so cholesterol. That's why I got uh, cholesterol. We already talked about a decent amount. Yeah, we went through some of this. The the one last thing that I wanted to mention here is that a lot of the interest in it started with uh, this guy. Goffman was studying it by inducing atherosclerosis in rabbits by feeding them a high cholesterol diet. Right. Despite the fact that rabbits are herbivorous and would never, ever eat a high cholesterol diet in nature. Yeah. I'm amazed that did not immediately disqualify his research. It's like, hey, let's feed this animal a ton of stuff that it would never eat in the wild. And then, oh, my God, something weird happened to its body. Of course, something weird happened. Yeah. And we're going to use these results to make human recommendations like that's just so dumb so wild i don't get i mean okay i can see maybe why he could be like okay well i don't have another animal to try this on but then how do you take the results seriously yeah right like there's nothing common that the rabbit's diet would have with humans like there's not i don't know like they're not omnivores yeah they don't eat any meat and humans can't eat most of the stuff rabbits eat that's exactly what i'm saying yeah it's like what are the commonalities (laughs) like we can't eat grass Right. Most uncooked plants we can't digest particularly well. We don't have our, what is it? The thing, like the spleen? Supposedly the spleen might have been used for digesting raw foods and it just kind of withered away as we cooked more. Oh, really? Interesting. I think that's right. Maybe the appendix. Or Yeah, I think that's it. I think the appendix. Oh, that's why it's like useless now, basically? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those two. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's the appendix. It's just the way you described the withering away that I mentioned the appendix no i i think it is i'm, I'm looking at i i plugged that in appendix and raw foods and there's a bunch of stories about it so I, I don't know if it's like solved but it's a consideration yeah anyway so yeah i think we must touch on the cholesterol stuff i was generally unhappy with this chapter it felt outdated yeah um because a book being 11 years old but it was an interesting history of how it of how we got to where we got to yeah well, you could also, I liked, actually liked seeing some of this. I, I liked reading this, though, because it showed you where a lot of the, the uh, confounding variables might have been in why this was the understanding. Exactly. Well, and that's what I was thinking, too, is that in reading it, it kind of makes sense that people thought this stuff. Well, it also makes sense why they, or like, so, so like, what are the Korean and Chinese soldiers section? Yeah. There's like a huge confounding variable there, right? Because it's not just their diet that you have to take into account. You also have to take into account genetics and then also the other things that they're eating. Like, well, like we were talking about here with the processed sugars and just the the lifestyle part too, we have to take that part into account as well. But yeah, the Chinese and and Korean soldiers, like that was, it seemed like the only thing they were looking to make the comparison was, oh, the Americans eat these things. The Chinese don't eat these things. The Americans have this amount of, uh, what's it called? Fat streaks in their coronary arteries. Yeah. And the Chinese don't. Therefore, it's the diet that's causing this. Like, it just seems like such a leap. And simplistic argument. Yeah, it was a pretty big causal leap. Yeah, it's like that's one variable, but what about all the other variables that you got to look at? Yeah, exactly. 
No, no, no. None of the other ones matter. It's just it's just this one. It felt like a confirmation bias. Yes. Well, and it's also funny how they well, not funny. It's interesting that they mentioned President Eisenhower's heart attack, too, because I can totally see that going out, like blowing that whole thing out of proportion then and turning it into this like public health disaster yeah. for like kind of out of uh, in a rushed and not well considered manner, like kind of like one of those situations where it's like we need to do something about this. Yep. And then everyone's like freaking out because it's like, oh, my God, the president could die of this thing. That means anybody can die of this thing. So we need to do something. Right. Exactly. Which led to a generation of horrible health advice. Yep. Good times. Yep. Still, I mean, there's still people still deal with that. I still think that's like most people, right? If you get outside of our bubble. Yeah. Most people still think like low fat equals good. And that's just not necessarily like at all true well and i think the biggest confounding problem is just how little nutrition research or how little nutrition education there is for doctors and how little ongoing education there is for doctors pretty much all of their ongoing education comes from pharmaceutical companies right were we talking about this or maybe i was talking about it with my dad but like doctors don't get very much nutritional training in school no i think it's like one class in med school yep yeah, it's like one course and that's about it. And that was back when they were in med school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. And there's not that much incentive to update their own understanding afterwards because it's a fairly simple like, oh, you have high cholesterol, I prescribe you this drug, like done, next patient. They're trying to get people in and out as fast as possible. Right. And basically all ongoing education comes from pamphlets that pharmaceutical companies send them to try to get them to sell their drugs. Right. And a pharma company has no incentive to show you the answers to these kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to send you a, a pamphlet saying like, hey, you probably shouldn't prescribe that drug that we make billions a year on. Right. Or doing things like, oh, you, you know, this eczema problem you have, like you could go on the keto diet and that might help. Like there's no reason for them to tell doctors about that. Because probably I would guess yeah. if your uh, friend who you mentioned went to their dermatologist and mentioned that like, oh, I'm going on the keto diet because I've heard this can help clear up my eczema, the doctor probably would have laughed. Right. And been like, ha ha, no, that's, that's not going to work. The the other factor I've heard too, which, you know, is a little more generous to doctors is that a lot of doctors try to do that stuff and then patients never do it. And mm. pati- a lot of patients just want a, like, just give me the pill. I could see that too. Like patients don't want to work to fix their problems. And so doctors are just kind of like jaded. I could see that too after like 20 years of doing that. And then like, oh yeah. yeah. It's like, can you, cause you're probably giving annual checkups to the same people and they're coming in every year and they're still overweight or they're more overweight. And it's like, well, have you changed your diet? It's like, oh, I tried for a month and then, you know, <laughs> like work. Right. And so I went back to eating poorly and it's like, all right, well, try again this year. Right. Right. And then when they say like, well, can I have, you know, gastric bypass surgery? Eventually you're just like, oh, fuck it. Sure. Whatever. Like you're obviously not going to change your diet. So, right. So your trust in the patient to do what they need to do is pretty low. Yeah. And then next time you have a patient who comes in and says like, oh, yeah, I'll change my diet. I'll be good this year. You're probably like, oh, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Plus, you don't make any kickbacks on that. You got to get those those pharmaceutical kickbacks. All the perks. Although I've heard there's less of those now, but they're still there. Yeah, I think they're getting stricter about them, thankfully. Yeah. Although they're definitely still there, but not as much. Yeah. Incentives 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 rule everything around me that should be a t-shirt it should be a t-shirt are we on to psychiatric health yeah we can go into psychiatric health i think the really i mean the main thing here that i thought was particularly interesting was the uh lsd stuff Mm, yeah because that was like super crazy i mean (laughs) first like more more skin in the game 
he <laughs> accidentally gets it on his skin or something, starts tripping out at work. It's like, holy shit, what happened? And so then he goes back and, you know, he, he figures out he must have, like gotten it on a skin or something. And so Hoffman takes the, the LSD he synthesized and then he makes uh, a quarter milligram of it. And <laughs> like, to be clear, a, a normal, like a big dose of LSD would be like 300 micrograms. So this is like just over a tenth. Yeah. Just over a tenth of what he took. So he took literally like a super heroic dose. A heroic dose would be like maybe 500 micrograms. Like that would be super aggressive, though. I've never heard of someone taking that much. Usually here in the three to 400 range. And so this guy took like 10x that uh, as his baseline. So and he never took it again after this. I can can see why. (laughs) I can see why. Yeah. I mean, he would have had, I imagine, complete ego death like massive disassociative experience, probably crazy paranoia, everything. I wonder how the rest of his life was after that. Like, did it yeah. did spook him forever? Good question. At those levels, you start to see some weird shit, right? I bet there's a book about him. Well, and I, I imagine how weird it would be being like the first person to experience that. Obviously, there's magic mushrooms and stuff. So people knew that hallucinogens existed, but to have taken the first LSD trip. Right. Right. And just be like, whoa, what was that? Where did I go? You know, what were those voices, like those colors? That would be super strange. Yeah. I wonder if he wrote about it after too. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. The guy at Harvard who took up a lot of his research basically ended up going completely insane. Oh, Timothy Leary? Yeah. I think it was Leary. He did like over a hundred deep acid trips. And then I think he eventually thought that like aliens were all around us. And I might be misremembering. It's like one of those people thought that though. Wow. The guy who took, so Albert Hoffman, he lived till a hundred. He was a hundred and two. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. He was born in 1906, died in 2008. Oh yeah. He just died 10 years ago. Yeah. He's got a book called LSD, My Problem Child. I actually think we should cover that. That sounds awesome. That would be cool. That'd be great. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Apparently, he wrote to Steve Jobs to ask him to fund an LSD therapeutic research study. I believe that. They kind of look like each other. It said it is unknown if Steve Jobs responded. (laughs) Damn. Wow, he was microdosing for the last 20 years of his life. That's cool. Yeah, it says 20 to 50 micrograms. He was microdosing with 20 to 50? That's what it says, yeah. (laughs) At least on Wikipedia. At least on Wikipedia. Hey, man, if your baseline is 0.25. Yeah, oh my God. (laughs) Like for context, I mean, 50 micrograms would be like what you take to go to a museum or to a concert. Wow. So that was his microdose. <laughs> that was his daily dose. That is wild. Is there a tolerance? Yeah. So if you do a uh, a psychedelic dose, which is usually considered like 50 milligrams and up, maybe 75 or 50 micrograms and up, it doesn't really work the next few days. You have to re- recover for a bit. So I wonder if there's some of that that was going on too. Yeah, he might have just been adjusted enough that he had basically subperceptual effects from 50 micrograms. Where somebody doesn't do it normally. Yeah, if you or I took 50 micrograms right now, we would be having a very different experience. Yeah, maybe unable to record a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would probably be a pretty good podcast. Like I, I took roughly that amount once and just like went kayaking for a few hours. Oh, nice. And it was one of the most wonderful things I think I've ever done. Oh, wow. Interesting. So you're still like functional on that much. Yeah, yeah. It's still functional and you can talk to people and you're not paranoid. It's just like, 
everything around you is beautiful and it looks like the water is breathing and you feel more connected with everyone. It's really nice. Doing that in kayaking actually sounds really fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Transcendent. Made you think trip. Made you think trip. There we go. In more ways than one. We'll fly all of our Patreon supporters <laughs> down to Austin and we can all take LSD and go kayaking. What tier is that? That's like the $1,000 a month tier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the that's the $100 a month tier. After you're, after you're subscribed for six months, you get to join us for the uh, made, you, made you think retreat. Made you think trip? Literally. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, made you, made you trip. Made you there trip. we go. <laughs> Good times. All right. Jump into the conclusion. Yeah. So conclusion. I think that what I really liked about this part is that he gets much more into the issues with modern science and how it is kind of antithetical to this process of serendipity and how a lot of our institutions almost penalize our ability to take advantage of it. I really liked what he, you know, one, what he said about government contracts and grants. Mm, yeah. Because... If you're getting money to research a specific thing, you will be disincentivized from exploring stuff that deviates from that thing you're being paid to research. Right, exactly. And so you might find something interesting and curious, but then you'll say like, oh, well, I can't go explore that because that's not what I'm getting paid to do. Right. It's kind of like what we talked about in the beginning, right? If you're a free agent, then you can run down those rabbit holes. But if you're not, then you can't. Exactly. Well, I guess he goes into this a little bit later, but the peer review process too. Yeah, that was a big one too. Yeah. Because if you if you can only get published if a bunch of your peers, you know, accept what's in your paper, then that encourages the orthodoxy puzzle solving that we talked about at the beginning. It doesn't encourage you to branch out and explore new areas. Well, Nassim Taleb has talked about this, right? And I think in Skin in the Game, but also in other books where uh, he was saying the what was he saying? Like how, the, how close you are to the ground is kind of reflected by uh, or, or it's inverse to like how much what your peers opinions are affect your actual career. Right. Like he was saying the like a restaurant owner doesn't really care what other restaurant owners think of their restaurant. They look at what their customers care about. Right. And academia is kind of the flip side of that. Academia is you're kind of judged purely by your peers and less by other like, I guess, the general public. Yeah. And I mean, after hearing all of these stories of there were a number of people in here who made these crazy discoveries and then were kind of like laughed at for 10, 15 years. And then, you know, maybe eventually they won the Nobel Prize or something. But that would be pretty hard, like putting up with that kind of ostracism from your peers and community because they're uncomfortable with what your conclusions might mean for their own beliefs and their own research. Right. Well, even when Louis Pasteur became, I think he was head of some institute that france had right the medical institute or something yeah it said that the constituent doctors were basically laughing at him and saying where's his md because he wasn't actually a doctor he's a chemist right and so i mean that was even after coming up with some of the, the most groundbreaking discoveries in medicine yeah it's you can see how it would really disincentivize you from kind of like even sharing some of your research right even if you found something interesting yeah, even if you found something interesting, that's probably why we don't see a lot of the evidence for the aquatic apes is that exactly. they're they're hiding it because they're afraid of getting ostracized. That's it. That's got to be the reason. And the aliens. That's got to be it. It's probably it. The pyramids too. Yeah. And the pyramid stuff. Uh, Roswell. The moon. The moon. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously <laughs> that was filmed. <laughs> it's all a NASA conspiracy. Okay. Before the show veers off too far. <laughs> 
I like how he also brought up the uh, the direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs. Yeah, that was huge. I didn't realize that had been legal for such a short time period. I didn't realize it used to be illegal. I didn't realize that was yeah. so recent. So uh, from the book, since the FDA lifted limits on direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs in 1997, this form of marketing grew into a $4.2 billion business. Only one other country, New Zealand, with a population of less than 4 million, allows such advertising. And- also that what is it like 50 percent yeah the 50 most heavily advertised drugs account for half the increase in spending on prescription drugs yeah so there's way more spending being done on drugs the number the average number of prescriptions for each american has gone from 7 in 93 to 12 in 2004 yeah it's almost doubled in the 10 years since or in the 10 years around when it became legal to do that kind of advertising that doesn't seem good. No, and I think then he goes into in the next part where he talks about a lot of these, um, and I'm going to say something that might be controversial, but some of these seemingly newer disorders and diseases right. that it seems that have basically been created to advertise drugs for. Yeah, he's got a whole list of them. ADD is the one that we've talked about on this show a lot where the number of mm-hmm. people who take AD, you know, an ADD medication seems to be way higher than the people who would actually have that disorder it just seems like most people are just active children yeah so that's that's a great example of one they invented a new name for pms right calling it premenstrual dysphoric disorder sounds very scary yeah it does doesn't it it's a psychiatric condition now it's not just a hormonal upset prozac yeah which is and they created a drug for it which is literally just prozac rebranded into a lavender colored pill called seraphim yep and then paxil was the other one the social anxiety disorder one? Oh, yeah. The social anxiety disorder and then the, the female sexual disorder. Right. Or female sexual dysfunction. Yeah, if you don't want to have sex with your husband, it's not that he's overweight and doesn't have high testosterone. It's that you have female sexual dysfunction. Right. Apparently. Apparently. You should take a drug for it. And he should take a drug for his stuff, too. It's just like everybody can take drugs. Yep. It's like Brave New World. It's great. And everyone's happy. Exactly. And everybody's happy, especially the especially the companies. <laughs> yeah. The the father can take, you know, Viagra and uh, Lipitor and the mother can take whatever the FSD drug is and the premenstrual dysphoric disorder disease. You can put the kids on ADHD meds. Uh, you've got like a nice all-American family. And the monthly average value of that household is probably pretty high. A couple thousand dollars there. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you know you can get like Zoloft for your dog? Oh, of course you can. You can get anti-anxiety meds for your dog. So people who have, and it's like so fucked up too, because these are people who leave their dog alone for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day because they're out doing other stuff. And then they're like, oh, why is my dog always so anxious when I come home and when I start to put my shoes on? Like, my dog must have anxiety. It's like, no, you asshole. You leave your dog home alone all day. <laughs> exactly. Right? But then vets will prescribe doggy Zoloft. Wow. Right? And then you just drug up your dogs so they become all, like, placid and mope around the house all day. And it's like, oh, well, now my dog is fixed. Drives me crazy. Yeah, it's criminal. I and mean, a lot of this stuff is criminal. Yeah, it is. And also, none, no one's looking at the like long-term effects also of some of these things like what happens if you take yeah we have no idea what they are yeah like if you take one some of these things for 20 years like not talking about the dog one but for like the human ones like what happens to you does it increase chances of something does it i don't know like what does it do yeah there's like not really much the add one is particularly scary because we know that you know adults taking low dose amphetamines semi-regularly isn't like crazy risky 
it's it's not you know a free lunch but there doesn't seem to be massive negative health effects worse than something like smoking or drinking alcohol right but we don't know what happens when you start giving it to six-year-olds right right during a development stage yeah and there are definitely kids in kindergarten or third grade or sixth grade who are getting put on this stuff well it straight up does affect your brain that's like the point of the drug so oh yeah yeah so it's definitely going to do something as they get older yeah it sucks for the kids Actually, you know, maybe this will be the thing that we look back on and we're like, holy shit, I can't believe we did that, right? Yeah. We could have an entire generation of kids like literally fucked up from being on any or from ADHD meds since, you know, they were in sixth grade. And that could actually have like lasting, damaging impact on them. And we'll just have this like 20 years where a whole generation kind of like got screwed over by their parents prescribing ADHD meds. Like, I would not be surprised. Neither would I. I would probably. I would bet on that happening more than it not happening. Yeah, it just it's one of those things I'd actually be surprised if it didn't happen. Yeah, I'd be surprised if we saw no negative effects from doing this. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder when we would see it. Would they like get Alzheimer's way earlier maybe or You could see I could see that or I could see even just uh IQ levels. I don't know. I feel like IQ levels might be messed up as well. Yeah, maybe less yeah, less intellectual development or less creative development maybe since it encourages kind of like very narrow like process oriented thinking. Then I guess that one would be hard to measure, but I could that seems like a very logical effect to have. It's just how would you measure that? Yeah. Or it could also be something like uh like psychiatric disorders. You know, maybe it increases depression or anxiety or something like that. I could definitely see that. If that's the case, we could already be seeing it, right? Right. Yeah, I wonder what the correlation is of people who took one of these drugs as a child to people who have, you know, some type of disorder. It might not just be depression, um, but some type of disorder today. It's a good question. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably go ahead and wrap up, huh? Uh, yeah, I'm just seeing, is there anything else on here? I think we touched on most of this last stuff, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was a, another fun Made You Think episode. That was a great episode. That was really fun. Yeah, it was also, I think, now one of our longer episodes, too. Yeah. We never plan our long episodes. They just sort of happen. They they emerge. It's organic. It's very bottom up. Yep. Yeah. Mm, we like that. It's emergent behavior. Emergent behavior. Uh, but yes, there is some great bonus material for this episode. There's our long discussion before the show started about aquatic apes and future possible episodes and UBI and all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, there's also our mid-episode exploration of whether or not Bill Clinton gave North Korea nukes. So if you want both of those, find out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash made you think. You get all kinds of goodies. You get those bonus materials I just told you about. You will get our detailed notes for each episode, including our like book highlights and highlights of our highlights and highlights of our highlights of our highlights. You get a space to discuss the show and episodes with both of us. Uh, so we'll reply and talk to you about it there. And uh, you can also join for our monthly live hangouts where we can all just get on and talk about anything related to or not related to the show. We're doing those monthly. And by the time you get this, we'll have already done the first one, but you'll you'll be just in time to sign up for the next one. So I would go ahead and check that out. Um, let's see. Is there anything else on the Patreon that we need to mention? Well, if you join the thousand dollar a month tier, you can That's true. go to the Made You Trip excursion. You can join for Made You Trip. 
<laughs> lots of lots of LSD and kayaking. I wonder if we put that up there as a joke. If anybody actually would do it, if anybody would take us up on it. That would be hilarious. <laughs> That'd be amazing. I would do it. I would be very down. Oh, I'd be down. I'd definitely be down. Yeah, <laughs> be a great time. All right. Well, yeah. Tell us if you want that. We will add that just for you. Yeah. Although somebody might not want to commit publicly to signing up for something with LSD. So oh, it just means they're coming for that part's optional. The rest is just they can hang out with us and go kayaking. That part's optional. That's right. Yeah. We'll we'll include our uh, Ethereum wallet address and you can just send $1,000 of Ethereum there and then it's <laughs> then it's not traceable. Then we're good to go. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> join the Patreon. Uh, it's also a great way to support the show and let us keep doing this ad free so we don't have to break up the episode with ads. We can kind of keep rolling and that's where a lot of the tangents come from. Right? Yes. So I think when we break it up for ads, it makes the tangents go down, like the number of tangents. Yeah, I don't we did it like a few times and like Semperd's a wonderful product. You should support them. You can still get code think. Uh it just felt unnatural, you know? I was just like, mm. I think it's just not our style. It's not our style. Yeah, we want to be able to ramble for three hours. And that's what people like about the show. That's what it is what people like about the show. And we just had those awkward moments where we would be like, Oh shit, we have to talk about the sponsor, and then we're like awkwardly forcing it in and like, I don't care that much if I forget to promote us, right? Because we'll talk about the Patreon eventually. Right. Yep. But anyway. So it's a great way to keep the show. Yeah, if you want the show to remain ad-free and tangent-filled, then hit up the Patreon. Exactly. Aside from that... You can leave a review on iTunes. That's super helpful for us because we get to show up as a recommended podcast for other podcasts. And also is a great way for us to book guests. So if you remember the last episode with presidential candidate Andrew Yang... Stuff like that becomes possible when someone can see the reviews that we have, see that you guys love us, and then they choose to join us on an episode. So definitely go do that if you haven't already. Thank you to everybody who has been doing that. Um, They're good ego boosts, most of them. We love reading your reviews. Yeah. They're very fun. Most of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Except for the person who didn't like Tangent. The, The last reviewer who used the name Aquatic Ape, you are our favorite reviewer. Yeah, I had to text Nat about that one. I was, I was really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who that was. I'm really curious. Uh, actually, don't tell us. Don't tell us. He'll be the mythological yeah. audience member that will always strive to please. Yep. <laughs> um, let's see. If other ways to support the show, uh, you can go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Tell your friends. Oh, definitely tell your friends. Definitely tell your friends. That's the biggest one. That's that's the number one way that everyone he- hears about us. Yeah. We don't really shout about the show all that much. No, so it's really just from listeners like you telling their friends and uh you can do it on twitter facebook if you have some smart friends who like books you should tell them about the podcast and if you don't have some smart friends who like books you should get better friends or you can join the patreon and make friends with other listeners that is also a good solution yeah hang out on twitter that's how neil and i became friends it is actually yeah (laughs) it is twitter is a great place (laughs) to make friends andrew yang we met on twitter that's true. Connected with him on Twitter too. Yeah. All good things in life start on Twitter. Twitter is amazing. It's like Twitter is what you make of it. I, I, you know, I don't like people or I, it's not, I don't like people. I, I don't like some people who say that they, they're like, I hate <laughs> Neil Twitter. hates people. They're, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's like they, they hate Twitter. They're like, I hate Twitter. There's so much negativity there. And it's like, yeah, that's half right. Um, you're not wrong, but you, <laughs> you're wrong in that. Like, that's not all there is on Twitter. Like, there's a lot of good stuff on Twitter too. Yeah, it's what you make of it. You just got to curate well. Exactly. There's a lot of great conversations I've had, met a lot of really cool people on there. Um, but yeah, if you want to talk to us, you can talk to us on Twitter anytime. I'm at the real Neil S. And I am at Nat Eliason. Uh, and I guess, the, I guess the other thing they can do is madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support. Uh, you can click through to any of those links there. Um, those are all different ways to support the show. So products we use, 
And if you're shopping on Amazon, which a lot of listeners have told us they like to do is click through that link and then go do the shopping like they would normally do on Amazon. And Amazon throws us a little bit of a kickback. Another way to support the show. It does. So we super appreciate that. You can also get on the newsletter there. We don't do too much with it, but if you're not ready to commit to the Patreon, that's a nice it's a nice warm up. Yeah. It's just giving us your email address. And then we'll remind you every few days about the Patreon. <laughs> Maybe not every few days. Once in a while. Once in a blue moon. <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, once in a while. We like to keep it a surprise. When when we remember to use it. Exactly. <laughs> I actually haven't checked it recently how many subscribers we have. I should probably do that. Anyway, yeah, so you can subscribe to the email list. There might be some announcements on there. There will be Patreon shoutouts on there. And we'll tell you about some Patreon things too. If you miss an episode or two, or maybe you don't listen all the way through to the end, uh, which you should be if you're this far in this episode, you'll probably listen to the end of all the episodes. But uh, we'll also announce some new Patreon features and things like that over there as well. Definitely. So I think with that, we I think we did it. I think we did it. And we only mentioned Aquatic Apes 15 times. Like 15 times yeah it's a it's a good day it's our new blockchain yeah. <laughs> people said we talked about crypto too much so now we're going to talk about aquatic games. we didn't mention crypto on this episode i know until now so we get to keep get to keep it going just a meta reference so it's, this one counts yeah exactly yep. <laughs> all right we will uh we'll see everyone next week see you guys next time